Hey, good afternoon. It's good to see you all. Glad you could be here tonight. Hey, we've been going through a series in Romans, and we're going to continue to do such. And so you guys do me a favor and take out your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. If you don't have a Bible, um, why don't you go ahead and slip up your hand and keep it raised really high, and then someone will be able to hand out uh, to you a copy of God's Word. And if you don't own a Bible, please keep the copy that we're handing out uh, so that you can grow in the knowledge of Christ. Um, and in case you have the Bible that we have, we are going to be on page, excuse me, the Bible that we're handing out, page 616 is where we'll be. 616, that's Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. <clears throat> And so here's what we have so far, just kind of catch you up to speed. So far, if you want to take the book of Romans and then divide it into two parts, what you have is chapters 1 through 11 is normally known as what is theological, um, what is true about God and what he's done in this earth, namely how he's redeeming a people. And then Romans 12 to the end of the, end of the book is what, how a Christian ought to live or in essence, Christian ethics. And so you have theology and ethics. And so now you're, you're, we're going to how do we live for God? As a follower of Christ, someone who wants to follow Jesus as a disciple, um, if you're in this room and you, you consider yourself or you would call yourself a Christian, how do I live? If you're in this room and you would say, I'm not a Christian, but I am curious to see how Christians are supposed to live, well, then you could just, just stay with us for the, for the rest of this semester until we finally finish this book. Um, and that's going to be about the end of November. Thank goodness. Can't wait for that. We're going to throw a party, going to dance, and be like, we're done with Romans, right? So for now, we have Romans chapter 12, and so here's what Paul is doing. Paul, is, um, Paul is, is giving us an opportunity to answer the questions that we ask, and, and that question is this. It has been my experience in, in uh, Arizona, living in the valley now for 14 years, that summertime, for whatever reason, becomes this kind of transitional time for many people, right? Um, people are asking themselves the question, do I want to be here? And it's true, especially last week, and when it's hot as is, is, you know where, right? And, and you're going, I think God, wait, is that the Lord? I think he's calling me somewhere else, right? And there's transition. Now, part of it is many of us in our congregation are graduating from college, and one of the more uh, unique and somewhat awkward transitions is that transition from college to the rest of your life. Um, when I, my wife and I met, we were in that kind of process, and I remember thinking, I don't know what I want to do. She didn't know what she wanted to do, and the first time we had a conversation, she asked me, hey, what do you want to do? And I said, hey, I want to be a professional friend. Uh, you can ask her that was the truth, and that wasn't like a little game strategy, but, you know, it was something just to throw out there, like, if you ever wanted to be with me, I'm a professional at this, so... Um, <laughs> I didn't really know what I was going to do. So that's an awkward transition. We have people who are having kids that are getting to school age. Um, my, my, young, my oldest son is to a point where we go, we've got to decide where he's going to go to school. Is, is he going to go to private school? Is he going to go to public school? Is he going to go to charter school? Is he going to be homeschooled? Is he not going to be schooled at all? Forget education. People are trying to figure this out. And then there's a group of people, um, many not in this room, but a group of people who are looking at their life and they're assessing their life. And they're saying, the best years of my life, or at least the most years of my life, are in the rearview mirror. I mean, I'm, I'm, already, I'm already past most of my living. And so how do I leave a legacy? How do I begin to establish that a legacy for my family and that our traditions, that our values, et cetera, et cetera, are continued? And so there's this, this question underneath all of that is for the Christian and all of that is, what does God want me to do? Right? You ever, you ever ask that? Or depending on what church you grew up in or what background you grew up in, what is God's calling on my life? What is God's anointing on my life? Or whatever that language may be. But what is it that God wants me to do now? Or what is it that God wants me to do next? I want to know the will of God. And most of us, we want to know God's will. 
The problem is when we go to the text, we, we would rather have like a verse that has our name in it, right? And like we go to like 18th Corinthians and it's like Paul's like, Ricardo, thus says the Lord, here's what you should do. And it's like, great, but you know, as far as I can remember, there's no Latin names in the Bible. Um, it's awkward and weird because most of it's Greek and Hebrew. Equally as, as awkward it is to have a black person with a Latin name too, but whatever, right? <laughs> like that, that verse, that verse is not there. And so how, some of you guys got that later. Like, wow, come on, come on. <laughs> so we want to know, how do, we, how do we process things? How do we make decisions? How do we begin to have what is known as discernment? Because that's exactly what we need. Well, here's what Paul does for us. Paul has given us these two verses and said, okay, you want discernment. You want to know what is God's perfect will. How do you make good moral decisions without having the explicit things written in the text? How, how do you make daily life decisions? What he says first is, First thing you do is it starts with responsive worship. And we're going to talk about what that means. Responsive worship. That means looking to who God is, what he's done, and responding with all of your life in worship. The second thing is it starts with responsive worship, but it is sustained through the renewing of our minds. Placing our, our, ourselves before the face of God, before the word of God, before the spirit of God, before the people of God. It is the renewal of our minds. And then lastly, what it results in is an is a ability to have better discernment in the day-to-day life decisions that God's called us to do. That we can make these decisions in a way that honors God and are having the implications of the gospel lived out in our life. So first again, uh, oh, there we go. Responsive worship, renewing our minds, and better discernment. Let's start first with responsive worship. Verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, or brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now, whenever you come to the Bible, and we do this quite often, is that whenever you see a therefore, you have to pause and ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. It's just good Bible teaching, because what's happening is uh, the, the person, the writer, is about to connect something that preceded what he's about to say, and how those things work together. So what Paul has done so far is that he's unpacked the gospel in detail, and he's given us all the privileges that we have, those of us who are in Christ Jesus, in, in, um, in the gospel, the privileges that we have. So chapters 1 said, you are separated from God. And we said the worst thing that God could do in his active wrath for us now is allow us to be who we would normally be apart from his sovereign intervention and grace. And so what Romans 1 said is there are people who said we don't want God, and God says, okay, do what you want to do. We said that was bad. And then Romans chapter 2, he came back and said, well, there are people who grew up around religion, and they're doing all the imperatives, but they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And so they too are separated and cannot make their way to God, no matter how good they obey. And so you had these categories of religion and irreligion, and then Romans chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, was Paul building out the argument of justification and how we have now been pulled together by faith in Christ Jesus. That he has become for us the right substitute that is needed to have righteousness and our sins forgiven. And the privileges begin to escalate from there. We were justified. It means we were made right before God by Jesus. We will always be made right before God by Jesus. Not only were we justified, but we were being sanctified, meaning the ongoing progressive work of, of the Holy Spirit in our life, making us like Jesus. And then he went from there and said, even more than that, you're glorified, which is what we will experience when Jesus comes and renews this, this world and the new heavens and new earth. But Paul uses the word glorified in Romans 8 in a past tense way to communicate 
if you are in Christ Jesus, you are as good in heaven now, even then. And then the highest privilege of the gospel that we can experience now was that of adoption. We talked about in Romans 8, that we have been given the spirit of Christ within us that cries out, Abba, Father, that you and I were not biological children of God, but we have now in Christ been welcomed to the family of God. And I don't want to rush over this part because this part is just precious. And that is, by being adopted children, and we talked about this in Romans 8, in the Roman Greco world, what that meant was every privilege, every right, every inheritance that the biological kids had, the adopted kids shared. So what that means is God's only begotten son, Jesus, that in the same way, in the same emotion, in the same intimacy, in the same affection, in the same way that God has loved Jesus from all eternity past, that now he loves us equally. That every single one of you that are in Christ Jesus, that you have this special love of the Father of the universe, the creator of the world, where he loves you as much as he loves Jesus, no matter what you did yesterday or what you will do tomorrow, good or bad, he loves you because he loves you. We talked about that last week. And so Paul is saying, with that, therefore, respond to that. That your worship is response and response to his life, his death, and his resurrection, and all that has been applied to you through Jesus Christ. And he says, according, um, going along here in verse 1, to the mercies of God. The mercies of God. The mercies of God communicates that we've been delivered. Everything that Paul has talked about in Romans, he says, bank everything on this. Have your firm foundation on this. Let everything you do be on this. Every worship, every experience, every action be according to and rooted into the good news of Jesus Christ. And what I love about when he talks about the mercies is, mercies is not just something God has done for us. The Bible lets us know that God's mercies are new for us every day. Meaning there's this ongoing work of Christ in our life. And as Christians sometimes, we live too far in the past. We always talk about what God did at one point in our life. We talk about this moment, this camp, this experience, this season or something where God did something. And so, but we don't talk about the present thing. And I always say that as Christians, we're, we're, we're living off too many leftovers, right? And, and leftovers are a good for, for sometimes, but not all the time. And I know some of you guys are like, is there anything else other than leftovers? And it's like, yeah, there's actually more, right? And especially when it comes to our walk with the Lord, meaning God has saved us, but he is also saving us. That the role and work of the Holy Spirit is still at work in our life and still at work in our midst, and we can see God do incredible, amazing things. And so to boil it down, what Paul says in the mercies of God is, count your blessings. Not just what God has done for you in salvation, but what are the things that you have? What are the experiences you can enjoy, the music you can listen to, the bike rides that you can have, the friendships and relationships, the family, et cetera, et cetera? He goes, won't you root yourself in what God has done, he says, and then respond in that. And the worship, the response of worship flows from there. He goes, I appeal to you, therefore, or I urge you, therefore, by the mercies of God, meaning the basis of worship. And then he goes on to show us what worship looks like. And he says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, present your bodies or offer your bodies. And what I love here is that Paul uses the word bodies, and I think he does it intentionally. Here's why. Because in the Roman Greco world, there was this divide that the body was bad, and then the soul and the spirit, the the mind, those things were good. And so no way would you ever say the body is ever good. And Paul's saying, no, present your body. And the reason why Paul is doing this, I believe why Paul is doing this, is he's saying all of who you are, 
the totality of your being, your thoughts, your emotions, your feelings, your desires, your affections, the things that you do psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, everything of who you are and what you do with your mind and with your hands, present that to God. Offer it to him as your worship, meaning as a living sacrifice. So, so Paul says your whole body comes to worship. And then he says a living sacrifice, which that brings the illusion of the temple. And the temple in the Old Testament was a place in which people worship God. And not only a place in which people worship God, but it was a place where people would bring their sacrifices. And oftentimes what they would bring is animals that would be, the blood would be shed, signifying that there had to be death for their sin. That in itself was just a preview of the ultimate death of Christ himself being the true sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of the world. So because Christ has already shed his blood once and for all, then Paul cannot be talking about us bringing before God something to sacrifice for our own sin. We don't have to do that. Let me just pause for a second. Um, Many of us, we think we need to add to Jesus' atonement, right? Practically, this is what this looks like. You find yourself in sin, and you find yourself living in a certain way that you know God doesn't have for you. And you find yourself walking down a certain way, and then you try to kind of put yourself a little management plan to get out of sin, right? Like a Dave's Ramsey plan for getting out of sin, right? And, and, and you, you put that together, and I'm going to read my Bible a little bit more, I'm going to pray a little bit longer, and, and you, you kind of have that, right? And depending on your personality, it's worse than others. Because some of you, um, if you, if you were just a kind of a perfectionist, that's going to be more for you than others. And the way me and my, my wife joking around about this is um, just our personalities are just massively different. And, and not better, just different. Although I used to early in marriage, better, <laughs> weird, better, right? You know, it's like just different. And the way it would work is we would talk about how— um, in, in college, if she had a B plus because she was like always going to get A's, and she would go to the professor and say, what do I need to do? What, what score do I need to get on this final exam in order to get the A? And he would tell her, and then she would shoot for that. Meanwhile, me, I would go to the professor and say, hey, I have a B. Um, if I don't take the final, will I still have this B, right? <laughs> and if he said yes, peace, I'm out, right? Well, I waste my time, right? So just different personalities. And so if you find yourself leaning more in this way, chances are when you sin, and all of us are in it, no matter what your personality is, you're going to try to add to it. You're going to try to add a living sacrifice to it. And what that is is actually looking at the cross of Christ and saying it wasn't enough. You don't need to punish yourself for your sin. Jesus died for your sin. That's what it means to be free. It is scandalous to think that you can do what you have done, whatever it may be, and again, and God is still saying, I forgive you. He doesn't forgive you because of anything you've done. He forgives you because of Jesus. And so let's not add any more to his atonement. When Jesus said it was finished, he really meant it was finished. It's why we sing the song, Jesus paid it all. It would be rather awkward if we sang Jesus almost paid it all, right? That just doesn't ring nearly as well because it's not true. So Paul is not talking about uh, us bringing sin offering, but there were other offerings in this temple. And the offerings of the temple were praise offerings. They were offerings of gratitude. There was offering of thanksgiving. And Paul is not saying that we have to only worship in a place, too. He's applying it to every area of life like Jesus did. If you can recall the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and, and, and she's saying, you know, your people say we got to worship over here. My people say we got to worship over here. And Jesus looks at her and says, listen, girlfriend, there's going to be a day that's coming when you will worship God anywhere. And that day is today. And so when we become to worship God, we worship God everywhere. And so Paul is saying, now, um, 
present your bodies, all of who you are, as a living sacrifice, meaning under the lordship of God, this is your spiritual worship. This is your spiritual worship. It's responsive to the gospel, and it's worship. Now, here's the thing that begins to, I think, limit our, mi- our minds are limited in, and this is, this is what I mean by this. Spiritual worship, sometimes we think, like the Roman Greco world, of which we are were, we were also influenced as Western culture, is, there, is that there's a, there's a divide between what is normally known as um, um, secular and then sacred. And so when Paul says spiritual worship, we immediately begin to think about certain things, right? And so when I say worship, um, immediately or at best what you think about maybe is this. The guys put some images together. That's what you think of, smoke and lights, right? <laughs> and, and part of it is what we did last week and what hopefully we do every week is worship is singing. It is. It is gathering together. It is. But we're talking about today, worship from Monday through Sunday, or Monday through Saturday. What does that look like? And so it's more than just singing. What if we begin to think of worship like this? Just being with your family. Or like this, working. Or like this guy with the four-inch vert. <laughs> I look at this picture and I go, you know that's a good conversation, Right? There's so many things that go in my mind. Either it's like, man, you remember that one time? Or you notice that there's two black guys and one white guy, and they're going, hey, I've always wanted to tell you something, my friend. (laughs) Whatever it is, it's a good conversation. (laughs) Two guys who haven't clearly worked out one bit, but they're having a good conversation. Uh, This is my favorite. This is my favorite picture. You know why? This is something we don't do in our culture and our walk with Jesus. And what it is, is a dude just sitting down. That is a picture of silence and solitude. How often do we just sit? Not necessarily have to pray, not have to have to do a journal. Just sit and be in the presence of God. Like, it is awkward for us to be silent. It is very awkward. We don't like it. We turn the radio on as soon as we can. You've been in a redemption community where your leader throws out a statement or a question and everybody sits still and you're like, I'm awkward, or a prayer group where people are praying and then now no one's praying. It's awkward, and, and, and I think that's what we need is a little bit of silence and solitude. You know what? God actually may speak to us in that moment and give us the rest we need in Jesus. The purpose of those pictures is to show that all of life is worship. When, when you hear us say all of life is all for Jesus, that's not some catchy phrase. What we're trying to take is what Paul is saying here in Romans. He's saying, listen, responsive worship is this. Whatever God's called you to do, whether, whether, whatever your industry is, whatever your vocation is, that's how you worship God. We should not have this secular, sacred divide. And if you're going, I don't even know what you're talking about in this secular, sacred divide. Let me explain this. Um, what happens is what we have is secular. These are things that at best are neutral or means to an end. And then sacred. Sacred things are things we know for fat God loves. Prayer, Bible reading, um, taking communion, singing songs about Jesus, not watching rated R movies, things like that, right? Um, those, are, those are the things. And then the reason why I would always tell what Christians get it or not get it is what I would do with my high school students when I was a high school pastor. I'd ask them the question. I'd say, uh, mind you, I was a high school pastor, so I used all the, the phrases that a high school pastor uses to his kids. So guys, if you wanted to be passionately, madly involved, interacted, in love with Jesus, or whatever the phrases were at that time, and you wanted to follow Christ with all your mind, heart, body, soul, and strength, what jobs would you take? And I would ask them, without a doubt, top three jobs were usually pastor, worship leader, and missionary, Right? It was basically pastor, worship leader, missionary were the three jobs that they would take because they thought that that would be the thing that most honored God. And I would say, okay, well, what if, 
you could be that person who loves God passionately with your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength and everything you do, and you were a lawyer, or you were a teacher, or you were a doctor, or you, you, know, you were a salesman, or you were a barista, or you were an artist, or whatever it may be, because that's actually what the Bible teaches. We, we have fallen into this understanding that what I do, that's like the holy thing, and then what most people do is, you guys are just you know, kind of just hanging out in, like, God's playground where I'm at the seat, like, I'm at the, the table, and it's like, not at all. Pa- Paul, Paul is saying, and the Bible teaches that all of life is worship. So if it's your, your, if you're a mom and you're a stay-at-home mom, one of the things we try to get out of our, our people's language is I'm jest, and whatever comes after that is usually pretty, like, like demeaning, but it's, it shouldn't be. Like, a, a mom would say, oh, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. No, 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 no. Um, one, there's no such thing as just a stay-at-home mom. I've never been a stay-at-home mom, but when I'm at home with my kids, it's not just anything other than just war, right? <laughs> so all of what you do, whatever, whatever it is you're going to do Monday through Saturday, that what Paul is saying is your response of worship is that you see who God is, what God has done for you, and what he's done in you, and that you offer everything you have, even if you're at a career, you're at a job, or you got some hobbies that you're not even that good at, you're not completely satisfied, and no matter what it is, you walk into work tomorrow, into the classroom tomorrow, or with your kids, or making a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or shooting a jump shot, or going to the gym, not working out, but a cool towel, whatever it is that you're doing, whatever that is, and you say, God, how do I do this to bring glory to you? That, that's what Paul is talking about here, um, that there's no secular sacred divide in this deal, and Paul says, this is what I want you to do, all right? To answer the question, what am I to do? It starts first with who God is, um, responding to him, and what's before you. What is before you now? So before you make a decision, do I leave? Do I stay? Do I date this person? Do I not date this person? Who is God? What has he done for you? And how do you make the most of, through worship, the things that God has placed before you? And he says, that is your, your spiritual worship. And one thing to add about spiritual worship is, the word actually means your rational service. What he's saying is, if you don't give all of your life to Jesus, you may not get Christianity. Meaning if there's just like, I give my soul to Jesus, but like the way I do my business, the way I handle my finances are not submitted to him, then you may not understand Christianity. There's this quote um, from this guy speaking on Romans 12, and I don't know um, what his name is, I, and I couldn't find it. Um, so I wasn't going to just put Ricardo at the end, but I thought, that's not right. Um, He says this, this means, speaking to this text, he says, this means to fail to give yourself in complete and total obedience to God is not merely an offense to the moral sense. It is a crucifixion of the intelligence. It is as stupid as it is wicked. Think, how can you come to grips with someone who has given himself utterly to you without giving yourself utterly to him? He's saying, if Christ, if God has given you everything of who he is, That means everything of who you are now belongs to him. This is your spiritual act of worship. It is responsive worship in the name and through the name and because of the name of Jesus. Amen? So Paul Paul stops there for a second. Okay, that's point one, responsive worship. But then how? Okay, I understand that all of life is offered Jesus. All of life is worship. But how do I practically go about doing that? Well, Paul gives us some help here. If you read it, continue to read with me in verse 2. Um, And talking about renewal of the mind, he says this, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Um, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. Okay, so Paul has these two words here. He has conformed, which means to be outwardly shaped externally. And then there's transformed, which means to be inwardly shaped. 
Um, conformed is what God, excuse me, is what happens naturally. You're born in this world, you are being conformed, whether you like it or not. You come into this world as a baby, ah, I'm being conformed, right? That's what you say, right? Immediately into this world. But when it comes to transform, that's something that is a work of God that you play a part in, but God has to initiate it and sustain it, but you play a part in. So conformed in itself is just living in whatever country, whatever city, and every time, whatever time period that you are at since Genesis 3. Um, that, that's what he's talking about. And he says a negative imperative, do not be conformed. Right? If you want to understand discernment, if you understand what it means to live as a Christian ethically, if you want to be someone who walks and follows Jesus, he says, okay, this, you give up your work, give your whole life to worship, but do not be conformed. But here's the problem. All of us are being conformed. Every single one of us. It is inevitable. It is going to happen. It is happening now. No matter what industry or what job or how long you've walked with Jesus, it's happening. So what that means is, as parents, no matter what school you send your kids to, no matter what form of education you send your kids to, they're going to be conformed. You know why? Because you're being conformed. No matter what you decide to watch or not watch, what you decide to drink or not drink, you will be conformed. Does that mean the currents of our culture are far too strong? You know what the problem is, too? We don't even notice it. We don't notice it. It just begins to happen. Maybe somebody will point it out to us here and there, but for the most part, we don't notice it. Let me give you a few examples. When I was working, this happens in any of your professions, but when I was working at, um, I was working at ASU as a missions counselor, and essentially what, I, what the people in my department did is we went around recruiting people from all over the country to come to ASU because the goal was to get as many people to enroll in ASU as possible. Nothing's changed, all right? And, um, and my, my, my officers would, would complain about their jobs, and I don't know why, because everybody else who worked with me, they had cities like D.C. and Philadelphia and Chicago and Denver and Seattle and L.A. to go recruit from. And I had Yuma and Tucson. <laughs> and I'm like, how'd this happen, right? And, and, and basically, they would just complain and complain. Like, every day was complaining about something. I mean, they would complain about everything. You never notice there's no windows in our office? Why don't we have windows in our office? They complain about that. You ever know that your tag is bigger than my? Why is my tag not as big as your tag? And it was just always like, goodness gracious. And my wife would come back from Litchfield Park, be driving, and then she'd pick me up uh, at ASU, and then we'd drive home together, and we'd talk about work. And this is before we had kids, and we had a lot of time together, and it was really good, and it was awesome. Not saying I don't like kids, but man, life was good. And so... <laughs> We get home, and then, so one time, um, what I would always tell her is about the office and what happened and, and how I'm trying to be faithful and honor God and, you know, just be a Christian, and, you know, and she said, uh, you ever notice that when you get in the car, you, you, you give me this picture of everyone complaining in your office, and then you get in the car, and you start complaining about them complaining? Like, aren't you doing the same thing that they're doing? And I looked at her dead in her eyes, and I said, I thought we were on the same team, baby. <laughs> What, what happened? <laughs> You're complaining. <laughs> and she was so right. She was so right. And that's just one way where you could just be conforming. All of us have had the experience where we, we, uh, we're with a group of friends or with family members or whatever it may be, and our language, our behaviors, our attitudes, the jokes we laugh at, whatever it may be, just in a social environment, it begins to, to go away that we go, that's not who we are. Like, if, if someone said, given this situation, and this joke was being told in this language, what would you do? If you wrote it down and you took a quiz on it, you would say, I, I do this, I do this, I do this. And yet, um, 
over a period of time, what these particular people and that particular culture begins to shape you, and then you go, man, what am I doing? All of us have had that experience where you're driven home from someone's house and you go, really, did I honor God? Was I really walking in Jesus and that? Was that, was that something? And we're being conformed. We're being conformed. My, my favorite illustration that I love to tell you guys is, is, is the way it happens in the beach. If you've ever been into a beach, you put your stuff down, you get into the water, you swim in the water. Your goal is to swim, to body surf, to boogie board, to surf, whatever it is may be. And then you get in there, and you're there for 10 minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, however long. And then you look back, and your stuff is way the heck over there, right? And you're going, how'd that happen? I, I mean, what was I doing? Here's the deal. Your intentions were good. All you wanted to do was swim, boogie board, body surf, surf, whatever. And then because of the currents of the ocean, you found yourself way over here. Most of us, we want to find a spouse we want to get a good job. We want to raise a family. We want to care for people. We want to love Jesus. We want to do really good things in this context called the world. And what happens is if we are not cognizant of what's happening, we find ourselves way over here spiritually, emotionally, financially, and we look back at who we were in Jesus, where this whole thing started, and we go, how did the heck did we get here? I wasn't even trying for that. And so when Paul says, do not be conformed, it's inevitable. But he gives us a glimpse of saying how we can swim upstream, so to say. Look at the, the latter part of, um, of verse 2, or at least the next part of verse 2. He says, do not be conformed to this world, the patterns, the values, the worldview. But he says, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. And so to be transformed is not something that happens inevitably, meaning God has to do something for that to happen. And so he's placed before us Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and, and what Paul is saying is, you receive Jesus and the Holy Spirit again and again and again, then you will begin to renew your mind. He says, but first, be transformed. That is swimming upstream, understanding that we cannot leave this world, nor are we called to leave this world, but we are in this world to live countercultural as a people. So going first to responsive worship, all of life for all for Jesus, all the, the things that we do, we do in the context of this world. We worship God in every area of life. And we do it not being conformed to this world, but we're asking God uniquely, how do I have the gospel implications in my life in this industry, in this relationship? How do I have the implications of God in my life in this situation? And how am I being transformed in this? And the be transformed is a work of God that we have to respond to. I Meaning we play a part in this. And God doesn't say, I'm going to do everything for you. It's, it's if you want it, if you have a desire for these things, you can have it fully in Jesus, but you have to respond to it. The way I think about this is when my kids say they want something to eat, um, we can cook them food because they say they're hungry, but they have to eat it. Like, my kids would die if we didn't eat anything for them. Or, that's weird. Um, that's how we, our kids live vicariously through us. It's a weird deal in our household. Um, our kids would die if we didn't cook food for them, if we didn't prepare food for them. But in preparing food, like God giving us Jesus, they still have to respond to it. They still have to eat it. And so when it comes to being transformed, yes, God does it, but you have to do something. And what Paul says is it's the renewing of your mind. Meaning you worship God, respond to who he is in all of life, and the way that it's sustained in your life is by renewing your mind. Not being conformed, being transformed, and renewing your mind. The word there, um, renewal of your mind, um, it, it's like hitting the refresh button again and again in your life, whether that's hourly, 
whether that's daily, whether that's weekly, monthly, that we have to hit that refresh button and remind ourselves to look back, oh, there's my stuff. That's who I am in Jesus. How did I get here? Let me swim upstream by God's power and God's strength. And the way that this transforming is happening is much like what Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 3, verse 18. And here's what Paul says in that verse. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. Now the context here is Paul, uh, Paul is talking about when Moses came down from Mount Sinai and the glory of God was radiating off his face and the Israelites said, we can't look at your face. Can you put a veil on it and then, and then we'll look at you? And Paul is saying now the veil has been lifted up and that we who are in Christ through the gospel can see the glory of God. And as we look to Jesus, as we swim, as we live, as we work, as we play, as we paint, in media as well as in the marketplace, as we look to the cross of Christ, keeping our eyes fixed on the author and perfecter of our faith, then we are begin, beginning to be transformed from one degree to another after in the likeness of the image of Jesus. And that doesn't create some monolithic community that takes the unique personalities of who you are created in God's image, beginning to look more and more like Jesus as you renew your mind. My question is, okay, practically, I mean real practically, how do I do that? Let me just be really clear with you. Worship Jesus by yourself. Worship Jesus with people and worship Jesus in everything you do. So worshiping Jesus by yourself, that means spend time with God. If I were discipling you all one-on-one, one of the first things I would do is I would talk to you about the gospel and what the gospel is, and then we would start meeting, and I would do a devotion, and then I would just show you how I do a devotion, and then you could start doing it yourself, and then you can grow from there. But devotion with the Lord. Some people call it quiet time. I no longer want to call it quiet time anymore because it just seems boring. And I don't want my time to be, I would never, you, you and your wife, you're about to have some quiet time. <laughs> no, no. One that, that probably brings up bad images anyway, right? And so when it comes to the time with the Lord, it's just time with the Lord. I want to devote myself to God. And so I, I can't tell you what everybody else does, but I know this. You have to be, uh, you have to vote yourself to the Lord the way that best works for you. And I can give you my way, but it may not work for you. I remember when I first got discipled, the guy who discipled me, he discipled me in a way that was good at the time for me. It was very linear, and it was a lot of acronyms, <laughs> a ton of them. And it was perfect for me. And then I kind of got out of that. Not because I outgrew it, it just wasn't for me. And sometimes what you'll do is you'll read a book about some godly woman or man, and you go, they did this, and so I'm going to try this. I remember reading this deal on Martin Luther, and it said I spent two hours in the morning in prayer, and I tried that. I kept falling asleep. And, and I was like, okay, that's not me for this season. Um, and the way I look at it is, and the way I've been taught is, um, devotion for me, renewing my mind, is kind of like working out. I know I need to do it, but I'm not going to do the same workout all the time. I mean, maybe I'll swim one day. Maybe I'll run another day. Maybe I'll pick up a mountain. I mean, whatever, right? And, and <laughs> so, yeah. you, you guys don't pick up mountains? That's how we get down at Planet Fitness. You guys don't know about that. <laughs> Judgment-free, baby. Judgment-free. So, is, uh, in this, and so in this, in this sense, so, so for me, I always had this rigid deal where I couldn't read the Bible and, and, until I, excuse me, I couldn't read a book about God so that a man or a woman wrote about God until I read the Bible. And I would have this justification and, and hard, in some ways, legalistic way on myself of going, how could I go to some man or woman who talks about God than to God himself, right? 
And, and what would happen is I'd wake up and I'd read my Bible and mentally and emotionally I wouldn't be there and I would just read stuff and it would kind of go by me and I was kind of going through the motions and then I'd get to the book. Well, now I'm just going, you know what? Whatever gets you there. And so for me, I can only give you my, my kind of process. What I do is I don't mind getting up early in the morning. I like getting up early. That may not work for you. So I get up really early in the morning and it works for me because my kids are still asleep and the house is usually dark and I love it that way. And what I do is I usually uh, listen to a song or I go for a jog or a short jog or something just to get my mind thinking. Um, what I've been doing recently is picking up this book called Kingdom Come. It's a short book that I like. And I'm, I'd read half a chapter or a chapter just enough that my affections for God begin to get raised. I begin to think about Jesus is coming home. Like I've been meditating that Jesus coming home and making this world um, completely his and renewed. And then halfway through that, or sometimes it's a few paragraphs, that I can feel myself, sense myself wanting to worship God. And so I'll begin in prayer and just praising God. Then I get to the Bible. Eventually, you have to get to the Bible. you got to get there. And this is the living, active Word of God. And then I read a couple chapters from the Old Testament. Right now I'm in Genesis, um, which is this one really bad family, by the way. Um, read a couple chapters in, in Genesis, and then I read a chapter or two in the New Testament, in First Thessalonians, where I'm at now. And then I take a paragraph. A paragraph from whatever I read in Thessalonians. And then I meditate on that paragraph, apply it to my life for that day, pray the Lord, sometimes I write, whatever, and that's it. And that process in itself is usually 35 to 40 minutes. It's not two hours. That works for me. And in doing that, my mind is being renewed. I've never known the person who has a time with the Lord, a consistent time with God that goes, it's, you know what, every time I spend time with God over a period of time, my life sucks, right? Hear me, circumstances may be getting worse, but your perspective on those circumstances are far better. A quiet time doesn't mean you won't get sick. A quiet time doesn't mean you won't get the job. A quiet time doesn't mean you'll get the spouse or your spouse that you have may not leave you. No, no, no. A time with Jesus says it, but a time with Jesus will give you the renewal of your mind that when you respond to him in worship, that that in itself is something you do all of life, but the fueling of that, the day-to-day sustaining of that full-time worship happens not being conformed to this world, but being transformed by looking to Jesus and to one, from one glory to another degree of glory, that you are being transformed by the renewal of your mind. And that's something all of us have to be doing. That's something that a follower of Jesus does. And so Paul gives us this picture, the responsive worship. You have the renewing of your mind, and now you get to the question. So what am I to do? How, how am I to know what it is that God wants me to do? What, do? what does God want me to do next? I mean, yes, I worship God. Okay, I could do that. And I can renew my mind. And don't look at this as a checklist. This is the way Christians live. This is life. And then Paul says, what the result of that is better discernment. And so look, look at this last part in verse 2. He says this. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may be, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Um, by testing you may discern, or your translation may say approve. That word discern and approve means to know what God wants you to do and then to do it. Because we're good at going, I know what God wants me to do. But what we say is, I know God wants me to do this, and then we add a but to it. Instead of, I know what God wants me to do, and I'm doing it. I know what he wants me to say. I know where he wants me to stay. I know where he wants me to go, and then doing it. It's saying, by then, by seeing who God is, responding to him in worship and when what, with, what, with what is in front of you, And by renewing your mind, constantly bringing yourself before the fire of God and having him kindle your life. And that the spirit of Christ being at work in your life, placing yourself before his word, before his people, and the community of believers. He said, renewing your mind, then you'll be able to know. 
You'll be able to know through testing, meaning through your life, that you'll be able to have a better perspective to know what is good and acceptable and perfect and pleasing before God. You will know the will of God. And he's talking here, the moral will of God, meaning what are you to be doing? And hear me, this doesn't mean that we neglect the Bible. The Bible gives us clear instructions on specific things. It says, if you're a husband, you are to love your wife. If you're a wife, you are to love your husband. That you should love your Lord, your God, with all your heart, mind, body, soul, and strength. And you should love your neighbor. Those are explicit. We're talking about discernment in what is usually called gray matters. Where do I send my kids? How do I choose a spouse? How do I, how do I, what do I? Those questions that we don't see explicit verses for, we take what we know to be true about God and his word and our daily life with him, and then we have perspective. Here's an example that I'll give for this is some of you may know this, but I do work uh, as a chapel with the football team uh, here at ASU. And one of the things I love to do, man, I love, one, I love it. I love working with guys. And what I love to do is going, okay, trying to get them to learn discernment. I will say, hey, what does Coach Graham want you to do for this summer? And let's just say one of them says, okay, I know he wants me to work out. I know he wants me to work on my backpedaling. I know he wants me to work on um, some other things, my, my, hand, my ball skills. Okay, did he tell you to do that? No, he didn't. Well, how do you know that? Because they usually say this, because I know Coach Graham, <laughs> right? Because I know Coach Graham. We can say that about a parent. We can say that about a boss. Boss, you spend so much time with somebody, you begin to know what they want you to do. When it comes to God, if you are truly putting yourself before him in worship daily with all of who you are, you're responding to the gospel. If you are constantly putting yourself before him in devotion, that you are having your, your mind renewed, um, when it comes to the things in your life, you'll be able to know and have a clear understanding what God may be calling you to do. As subjective as it may be, God may be calling me to do this in this situation. How do you know? He didn't say that. I know God. I know God, and I spend time with God, and I hear him talk so much, and I know what he's like, but I'm pretty sure this is what he would have for me to do, and I can have a council of believers around me. With many counselors, you will succeed, as the proverb says, but then you will be able to know and test and see what God, is, what God is calling you to do and what is good and what is acceptable. Starts with worship. Starts with responsive worship. Not just worship, just to worship, but by seeing and loving Jesus, spending time at the cross, silence and solitude. And it happens Monday through Saturday in everything you do. It's sustained by the renewal of your mind. Having that time with Jesus is so imperative for your life. And then the result of it is you kind of know what to do in situations because you know God and you spent time with God. Amen? Let's pray.